Welcome to episode 5 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Uh, This episode is diametrically striped, so if you have a phone or a computer that supports diametric striping, make sure you turn that on at the outset. Today I'm going to talk to Andy McCarthy about whether or not we should abolish the FBI. I'm a yes, he's a no, and I'm sure that the crackling noise at the end of the line we were talking on was just a coincidence. But before we get to that, here is a section on superstitions. On Sunday morning, I confessed in my weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at charlescwcook.com, that I am ridiculously superstitious when it comes to sports. And when I say ridiculously, I'll happily put the emphasis on ridiculous. If my feet are on the couch when the Yankees hit a home run, I'll keep them on the couch for the rest of the game, even if I get cramp. If the Jaguars start winning when I'm drinking beer, I'll make sure I have a beer in my hand for the rest of the game. Or at least that's my excuse. If I get Chipotle for lunch and the Gators lose, I won't get Chipotle again during college football season because it was obviously my getting Chipotle that cost them the game. And so on and so forth. Now, I I know intellectually that there is no mechanism by which one of those things can lead to the other but I also don't really care because I can't affect the game in any other way that's all I've got as I wrote in the newsletter I suspect that those superstitions are a means by which I can try to manage my own stress sports are unusual in that you end up or at least I do caring about them enormously, but you also have absolutely no control over the outcome. And that doesn't happen very much in life. It's a rare circumstance. And so to mitigate the anxiety, we start making stuff up. We start seeing patterns that don't exist. Anyhow, at the end of the newsletter, I asked readers to send me some examples of their own ridiculous superstitions. And boy, did they come through. I promised that I'd read some out on the podcast. So here goes. I'll remove the names of each sender, although if you send me enough money or wine, I'll happily send over names, addresses, social security numbers to the highest bidder. Email number one. My dad lived in the Bay Area at the height of 49ers fever. He and my mum were at their apartment during the San Francisco v. Dallas game in 1981. My mum was putting the washing away and the 49ers started to go on their famous end-of-game drive that would end up culminating in the catch. My dad, who was 19 at the time, noticed the drive started going well while my mum was putting away the laundry in the closet. This led to him forcing her to stay in the closet. He refused to let her leave. As I said, this culminated in one of the most famous plays in NFL history, and of course, the great tragedy of this is twofold. Number one, my parents ended up in a fight because my mum refused to go back to being held in the closet for the rest of the playoffs. Number two, my mum was also a 49ers fan, and she missed one of the most famous plays ever because my dad was holding her captive in the closet. That is hardcore. And I'm, I'm glad they're still married. Well, it doesn't actually say they're still married, but I hope they're still married. Email number two. I used to wrap on the table or couch cushion or whatever three times on third downs for Gator games. I found this worked incredibly well during the Tebow years and less since. I have a t-shirt that's good luck to wear to games I go to in person, but bad luck to wear of just watching on TV. Sometimes I have to walk away from games and check an important next play on my phone instead, as that can be luckier, I'm deranged. Well, you are, yes. But you are no more deranged than a friend of mine who once watched an entire Yankees postseason game through the hinges of his office door. Uh, He was committed. Or he should have been. 
Email number three. <laughs> this one's even better. Anytime I was watching the later innings of a Tigers game, I suddenly felt the urge to readjust my cap repeatedly in a specific fashion. Whether in the stands or on the couch, the cap had to be lifted off my head just so, almost all the way, but not quite, and replaced in one fluid motion. This happened dozens of times in a row, sometimes so much that those around me grew worried. I'm not sure how or why I came to this ritual, but I remain convinced that it helps the Tigers win. Come to think of it, I stopped following baseball closely a few years ago, and the Tigers haven't done so well, so maybe it really was the secret to their success. So it wasn't, but I totally understand. Email number four. <laughs> okay. This is where it gets. <laughs> uh. I'm on a group text with three other alumni of the University of North Carolina, and we text each other incessantly while watching Tar Hill football and basketball games from our respective houses. Aside from sending pretty pessimistic, fatalistic texts throughout about how the game we're watching will ultimately end, the four of us will time our trips to the bathroom to how well or how poorly the Tar Heels are performing. Does the UNC basketball team have a double-digit lead over an arch-rival? If so, you're not using the bathroom until after the game concludes. I don't care how badly you have to go, you're holding it in. Is the UNC football team trailing by a couple touchdowns? You better pay a visit to the bathroom to try and get some positive mojo going. I forget how the four of us came up with this superstition, but we've been operating under these rules for well over a decade now, and not one of us are planning to stop anytime soon. So this one doesn't say, but these people have to be men. There's just no way a woman would do that. Email number five. Re-sport superstitions. A friend of mine can only watch close games involving the Yankees or the Tar Heels by looking at the reflection of the TV screen in a window. He can do no other. Email number six. The dumbest thing that I do is apply, <laughs> is apply my superstitions to games that are over. I frequently DVR games and watch them later in the day or evening. Though the game has been over for hours, sometimes I will still exercise my superstitious routines. My reasoning is that if I can affect a game that's being played a thousand miles away, then why not a game that has already been played? If my powers can overcome space, then why not time? I actually think that makes sense. And I'll, I'll leave you with two that blew my mind. One person wrote to me, it's bad luck to be superstitious. Come on, what chance does that give me? Final email. I used to do strange superstitious things while watching sporting events. I outgrew it. You probably will too. I'm 81. It took a bit. Good luck. Well, I will need it. The writer doesn't say when he stopped doing strange superstitious things while watching sporting events, but if he outgrew it at 81, I have 44 more years of this nonsense left. So wish me luck. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Andy McCarthy, who is going to tell me why I am wrong to have argued recently that we should completely dismantle the FBI. So a few weeks ago, I think a few weeks ago, just before the hurricane, in fact, I wrote a piece in which I proposed that we should dismantle the FBI. And since then, Andy McCarthy and I have sort of gone back and forth, but never with one another. Uh, Andy wrote a piece about the Matt Gates contretemps on which my piece was based but it wasn't a response to me. Mine wasn't a response to Andy. And he did talk about the FBI with Rich Lowry on his podcast, The McCarthy Report, but not on mine. And so I thought it would be a good idea if Andy and I talked about this head on. So that's what we're going to do. Welcome, Andy McCarthy, to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Charlie, it's uh, it's great to be here. Congratulations on the new podcast. I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be at the Top of the hit parade. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. It's been fun. And they let me have a fourth episode, so obviously. Pretty good. Well, yeah. we'll see if they give you a fifth after this. Well, I, I was going to say, last time I, <laughs> I criticized the FBI, they sent a hurricane to my house. So. 
<laughs> that would be that that would exhibit a lot more confidence uh, confidence than we have any reason to think they have. Yeah. But anyhow, my view here is not that the FBI should be dismantled because it investigated Matt Gates. You know, I've I had a few people who wrote to me and said this is about Trump. No, it's not about Trump. I mean, if you remember back ten years ago, before I really knew uh, who Donald Trump was. I've been critical of, say, the NSA, and I'm dispositionally suspicious of federal agencies, especially federal agencies with police power. And I've come to the conclusion that the FBI is irredeemable, that an organization that has J. Edgar Hoover emblazoned on its building has not changed since the bad old days. And they were the bad old days. So I think what we should do to start with, before we get to whether it is correct that they're irredeemable, and I'm correct that it should be dismantled, is see to what extent we agree that the FBI has been problematic, let's say, from the start, and that its behavior is still problematic, and then proceed from there. So how do you see the FBI today? I think the FBI is a really troubled institution, and there's a lot to be said for the argument that they have never disavowed the Hoover legacy. Uh, in fact, as, uh, as I think you've observed and others have observed, their, their headquarters is still called the J. Edgar Hoover Building. And I don't think that's just um, legacy. I think that there, there are still vestiges of Hoover that are part of the FBI's makeup. At the same time, I think I think two things. I think, number one, a lot of your complaints specifically about the FBI are less about the FBI than federal enforcement in general, where the FBI is kind of the, um, the point of the spear, but it's not necessarily the decision-making component that results in the things that, um, that you complain about. And I think secondly, I, after having like 30 years to, to think about this, think that I was, have now drawn the conclusion that I was wrong uh, about something I used to feel very strongly about, particularly when I was a prosecutor doing terrorism cases. And that is, I thought the American model of having the domestic security service be a law enforcement organization under the same roof as the criminal investigative service. That is to say, that whole mission, both of those missions, are assigned to the FBI. I thought that that was better than the, for example, the British system, where you have MI5, which is the domestic security service, but they're not a police organization, and there's significant uh, restrictions on them in terms of what they can refer to, say, Scotland Yard if they discover uh, criminal evidence in the course of their security surveillance. I thought our system was better. I thought that it made it more easy, especially in a time when the major threat to the United States was, was uh, jihadist terrorism. Uh, having both missions under the same roof allowed us to leverage uh, those two missions in a way that was most efficient against what the main threat was. And I poo-pooed the idea, uh, which the which was big in the days of the Clinton administration, that the Bureau would ever pretextually use its national security authority, like FISA, to conduct criminal investigations when it didn't actually have any criminal evidence. There was no suggestion back then that we had done that. It was a hypothetical fear. But now if you fast forward a couple of decades, they've done exactly what I said they would never do. But it's actually a worse problem because I think being an intelligence agency is such a different discipline than being a police agency that the intelligence part, especially the fact that the intelligence really, really has become the paramount bureau mission, uh, that it's really infected uh, the FBI in a bad way and made it a worse police agency. And that's a big problem. All right. Let, let's separate out the structural debate from what you're talking about. 
By that I mean you wrote in a recent piece that we're going to have a federal law enforcement entity because of the size and nature of the federal government. And you said there's no great advantage to just changing the name or the sign on the door. Now, I could argue (laughs) that we shouldn't have the federal government in the way that it currently exists, and therefore we wouldn't need a law enforcement agency. But that would be a futile argument. I have lost that argument. We're not going to go back to pre-New Deal America. So let's stipulate you're right. We are going to have a federal government that is influential, intrusive even, and it's going to need a law enforcement agency. But there are times when the tools that we accept we need become so corrupted that we do, in fact, start over. We don't say we won't have a police force in some county in a state. We don't say that we won't have a department in a corporation. We just say everyone is fired and we'll reimagine this. Now, you've just described an FBI that has lost its way, that has moved into an area in which it doesn't belong. And my fear is that if skeptical administration were to come in, or better yet, a a Congress were to convene and determine that the FBI is troubled, that by just moving around the chess pieces, it would retain too much of the habit that has made the FBI a problem. So we still have the J. Edgar Hoover building. That seems superficial. In some respects, it's not superficial because the agency itself does not regard J. Edgar Hoover as an embarrassment or a problem. The capture of the FBI by political actors within Washington would presumably remain if you kept the people and the leadership. The inability to hold the FBI to account with juries in Washington, D.C. would remain if you didn't, say, move it to Nebraska. What I'm suggesting is, isn't there a case that, yes, you're going to have an FBI-style agency, but that the FBI, right from the beginning, has institutionally been so problematic that we really ought to say, how do we want our federal law enforcement agencies to work? Let's pull this one down completely and start over in a different place with different people under different auspices. Well, I see the value in that. Um, I just think it, you know, in the cost benefit analysis of things, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I, let me uh, back up and just press you on another, on one of your premises, which is, uh, and this may be just because I made the argument um, incompletely, but I don't think the reason that we have and have to have a federal law enforcement agency is strictly because of the size and scope of the federal government. I, you know, having uh, been a prosecutor for a long time, there are certain crime challenges that are simply not practically well investigated by the state authorities. For example, uh, you know, multi-state or multinational crime syndicates are very hard for uh, the authorities of a single state to investigate effectively and to prosecute effectively. So I think part of the reason that you have to have a federal law enforcement agency is because it's it's more efficient in terms and, and more effective uh, in terms of that particular kind of crime problem which is a which is a profound yeah, that's a fair point crime problem um as far as taking the whole thing down charlie i what i i think you underestimate how much strength the fbi has on the hill it probably is less than it used to be maybe even significantly less but it's a lot and a lot of effort would be required to take the whole thing down even if it would be more than symbolically important to reject the Hoover legacy and say that we we are starting all over again with a different ethos and a different set of premises. Um, I think that the practical reality of what would happen if you had the kind of overhaul that you need is that you couldn't do without, you know, I guess there are 13,000 FBI agents, and I don't know how many other agents from different federal agencies, but let's just stick with the FBI. Even if you fired everyone 
you know, the mission would have to continue. So you would end up, whatever the new entity was, you'd be hiring back most of the same people. I, I just don't see, as a practical matter, it seems to me like it would be better to take the existing infrastructure, even if you wanted to call it something different, which I, I wouldn't have any objection to uh, at all. You know, the reality is that you're going to, what you're going to be doing is retraining people who are already FBI agents in whatever, you know, the new protocols you want to establish in whatever is going to be the replacement agency. And I just think that in terms of political reality, it would be easier to achieve that kind of a reform than to just simply say, we just have to get rid of the FBI. Cause I, I think, I think that would be a Herculean task on Capitol Hill. All right. So I sketched out some reforms in my piece that I would prefer to, to doing nothing. If we're not going to get rid of it, if we're going to take the more practical approach, I think it needs to be altered. So I'm going to run these past you and see whether you think these are practical or not. So the first one is, if no underlying crime is discovered by the FBI in the course of its investigation, that is, if it finds that the person it's looking into hasn't actually done the thing that they were suspected of in the first place, there can be no process crime that results from that investigation unless it's a lie to a grand jury or a lie that prevents the exoneration of an innocent person. In other words, they can't come into my house on the assumption that I'm doing something illegal, ask me questions, discover that I wasn't doing anything wrong, and then prosecute me for having told them something that was false or forgotten which date I was on a plane to France or whatever. Yeah, I think that um, I have a, a major problem with that beginning with the idea that, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate enough to live in a country where we have a right not to speak to the FBI. So if somebody doesn't want to speak to the FBI, they shouldn't speak to the FBI. Uh, if you speak, you should tell the truth. So, you know, unless you're going to say that there are certain things the FBI shouldn't be investigating in the first place, um, if the investigation is legitimate to begin with, and you choose to waive your Fifth Amendment right and speak to the FBI, you should, you should speak truthfully. Um, but what if you speak untruthfully by accident? Is it not the case that the FBI often gets people on these absurd technicalities where they've forgotten something or misspoken or they were tired and they said something that wasn't true, but it wasn't materially important? Well, materiality is a defense to a to a false statements charge. I mean, I, I think, Charlie, if you wanted to tighten up the proof requirements for a false statements case, um, for example, uh, if you wanted to make a requirement that unless the statement was recorded electronically, it could not be the basis for a prosecution. And unless a court made a finding at the beginning, like let's say the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office bring charges, have a question of law for the court at the beginning of the case. Is the, is the alleged uh, false statement material so that you would get two bites of the apple? You'd have a chance to get the judge to throw it out, and then if that didn't work, you could still argue it to the jury. I think there are ways you could tighten up the false statements offense, which does lend itself to abuse. But I think to get rid of it would invite people to mislead the FBI, which is an unnecessary thing to do in a country where they don't have to talk to the FBI in the first place. How about this? Mandate that the FBI is an agency of the federal government. Explain in detail at the outset of any investigation, I don't mean publicly, but I mean within its documents, and if necessary to a judge, why it rather than a state or local police force is getting involved in the case. This would stop overreach from the federal government in cases where it's not necessary to be involved. Yeah, I, you know, it, this is one of those ones where, in principle, I could get behind this, but I don't think it's, a, it's reflective of reality. Uh, and what I mean by that is there are now so many federal crimes on the books 
that it would simply not be at all difficult in almost any situation other than, say, a push-in robbery, where it's like absolutely clear that it's an interstate activity. It would be not hard at all for the FBI to articulate an acceptable reason to be conducting an investigation. And in fact, it, you know, just to, to be more uh, concrete about this, uh, this was a big dispute in uh, Horowitz's report in connection with Russiagate, where he said that uh, you know basically the FBI, uh, under the standards that now exist, they can essentially open a case on a hunch, especially a, uh, a you know a national security counterintelligence case. And what Barr and I think Durham push back with is, you know, that may be what the technical standard says. But, you know, come on, here we're talking about a case where you're intruding law enforcement into politics, which we should have higher standards about. Um, and I think their point was that um, you have to have some minimal standard, but what you really have to depend on here is there's got to be adult supervision in the FBI, which was lacking, obviously, at the time. Uh, that's going to enforce whatever standard that you have uh, in a in a way that's effective uh, and in a way that's you know practical and mindful of all of the constitutional considerations that are in play. But I think what you're talking about here, the, the problem that you're driving at is that we have too many federal crimes, too much federal intrusion in what ought to be local, and that the FBI uh, is not effectively supervised in terms of what cases it should get into and what ones it, it it shouldn't. I don't know that what you're proposing here addresses that. So am I blaming the wrong party, perhaps? Perhaps this yes. is an issue for Congress. Perhaps Congress should either repeal a lot of its laws or make it clear what it wants prioritized and what it doesn't. Yeah, I think a lot of this is a function of the fact that we have lost the ability to hold people accountable. I mean, the FBI is in the spot that it's in because nobody ever gets fired, right? We find a million abuses and no one gets fired. So then you have to go back to how does it exercise these authorities in the first place? And basically, Congress gives very sweeping authority. They don't conduct effective oversight. The number of federal crimes on the books metastasizes, which gives the Bureau more and more authority. Uh, and then if you allow it to become by way of ethos, an intelligence organization rather than a police agency, it starts to prioritize things like secrecy and preventing things from happening over civil rights, which you, which you can never allow a police agency to do. So I think a lot of this is a, a function of bad legislating and ineffective oversight. Okay. Next one. Mandate that the FBI is forbidden from publicly announcing that it is conducting an investigation until charges are brought. And related, mandate that if an investigation is announced in error or leaked, the FBI must publicly announce the closure of the case, even when that closure comes. And that FBI staff must refrain from implying in public that the subject of their closed investigation is guilty. And on that lattermost item I'm thinking of Mueller's absurd description when discussing President Trump, which essentially amounted to, well, <laughs> he hasn't proven that he's innocent. Right. The shifting of the burden of proof. A, a lot, you know, Charlie, we criticized Mueller uh, over that precisely because what he did was against, well, I mean, it, it's also a constitutional problem of burden shifting, but it's also against the protocols that already exist. A lot of what you just uh, proposed uh, is already against their regulations. They're not supposed to speak publicly about investigations unless and until somebody is charged. Now, I think, um, and, and I, I, I thought this in going through your piece, a lot of what you complain about is rightly complaining about leaks from unaccountable government uh, or uh, unidentified uh, government officials. And that is a huge problem. It's always been a huge problem. Uh, I was baffled about what to do about it when I was a prosecutor, when it was personally a huge problem for me. Um, and it's just very, the information is too dispersed 
and too diffuse in the government. Too, too many people know things that they don't need to know, and they like to blab to the, to the media. But that having been said, a lot of the leaking that you complain about does not necessarily or even um, probably come from the FBI. Um, you know, one of the things I, I pointed out in the in the Matt Gates case, for example, is that when the inf- when the investigative information was only known to the FBI, there was no leaking. There was no leaking in that case for over a year or almost a year uh, until the point that they got to the precipice of bringing charges. But you know, there's a certain point in an investigation where you end up going uh, overt because you've done everything that you can do covertly. And once you start to put people in the grand jury, and once you start to subpoena people and they start to get counsel, it simply becomes a public fact that there's an investigation, even if charges haven't been brought. And a lot of times, the information that gets into the media comes from defense lawyers and other people who are close to the people who are under investigation. The FBI gets blamed for the fact that the investigation has become public, but it's not always the FBI's fault. Should the FBI be required to announce publicly that a case has been closed if that case has made it into the public imagination? Well, I, I don't I wouldn't require the FBI to do it if there was no indication that the FBI was responsible for it being leaked in the first place. But more to the point, th- there's nothing that's significant as a matter of law in the closure of an investigation. Um, Let's say I close an investigation because I've decided that this is someone who doesn't merit prosecution because it's a first offense or, you know, it's not up to our standards. Like say it's a, you know, it's a $300 fraud and the federal government would rather have a $10,000 bottom before it starts to bring charges. I could announce that the case is closed, but if one additional piece of information comes in that puts me over the top or gives me a reason that I didn't already have, you know, to pursue the investigation, then I can reopen the investigation. So what's the point of announcing that there's been closure when there's nothing final or actionable about closure? And most of the time, you know, people become aware of the fact that investigations get closed um, because if an investigation results, for example, in an arrest, but there's never an indictment, there's usually some kind of a formal agreement where, the, you know, the charges get dropped in exchange for some kind of alternative uh, resolution. There's not that many cases where it happens where investigation gets leaked by the FBI, and then it doesn't end up resulting in charges. And most of those cases, I think, uh, end up involving pretty public people as to whom it's pretty obvious that the charges, you know, they were under investigation, but no charges ever followed. So I just don't know what the, you know, since there's nothing, it's not like if you, you know, if you indict somebody and you dismiss the indictment, then that, that can have real legal consequences. But you can uh, reopen a case if new evidence comes to light, having said publicly, we investigated this person and we found nothing. Sure. But why should you have to say that? Well, because once it's been announced that somebody's under FBI investigation, then they have that inserted into every description of them for the rest of their life. Well, I guess, uh, you know, the thing is, the the FBI is not in the exoneration business. The the FBI is in the proving crimes business. So if you don't prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, that's the end of it. But that doesn't mean the person didn't do it. There's a lot of cases that I've had where the person actually is guilty, but we're not able to make the case. Why should I go out and, and act as if they've been exonerated when the reality is, I haven't been able to prove proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And what what you're entitled to get out of that is not charged. I think that the scale of the FBI and the scarlet letter that it leaves would call for some sort of public announcement that insufficient evidence was found. I don't think that's exoneration. But at the moment, it seems so one-sided that you put this 
cloud over somebody's head and then nothing is done to remove it. I, I agree with you if the FBI has made it public that the person right. is under investigation. So that's the contingent point, is right. that they should have to right. do it if, right. if they and really I, want again, to. Again, Charlie, I think a lot of this could be done by better supervision. I mean, the problem is nobody ever gets held accountable. They have all these rules and all these protocols and all these, we don't do this, we don't do that. But then we again and again and again find that they do do the things that they're not supposed to do and nobody ever gets fired. I think part of the reason that Durham's cases against the two guys that he charged with false statements, part of the reason they went up in smoke, even though they weren't strong cases, the, you know maybe they wouldn't have uh, prevailed anyway, was that by comparison, what the defendants did was trivial compared to the misconduct of the Bureau. And the problem, you know, if you're a juror and you're sitting there looking all this, you say to yourself, why are they indicting this guy when, you know, the Bureau lied under oath to a federal court? And so how do we fix help. that? How do we fix that? I mean, uh, Congress has to hold them accountable. I, what I, I, I would say two things. One is I would take away their national security mission. I would take away the foreign counterintelligence mission. I would just, I just think uh, after all these years, it's not uh, a good idea. But the other thing is, if you want to get the uh, government agency's attention, and particularly, I know this from the Justice Department, and the FBI, you have to slash their budget. You know, you have to just say, uh, you know, if you do this, this program is gone, or that program is gone, and you have to fire people when they when they break the rules. I mean, I I must say, if you're the public looking at all this and you see, for example, this character Danchenko get indicted, now he. he Seems like a slippery guy, but at the same time, that you know, the Inspector General of the Justice Department did a thorough report on the Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe, in which he found that he lied to the FBI four times, including I think twice under oath, and he gets a walk. So, should we conclude that Congress just doesn't care about this? You said earlier that the FBI is still pretty influential on the Hill. That's changing, yeah. I think, on the right. Yep. And historically, the FBI was unpopular on the left. So there's been something of a shift there. But if the issue here is a lack of oversight from Congress and an unwillingness to defund either completely or selectively the FBI, then what should an average voter conclude? That Congress is happy with the FBI's performance? That seems terrifying. Well, no, I, I think it's just an iteration of a larger problem that you know, the average lawmaker today thinks the job is to delegate your authority to some other entity and then go on cable TV and complain about how bad things are. And that's, you know, we're seeing that in connection with the FBI. But if we wanted to broaden the lens, we could see that in a variety of different areas, I think. Here's a, another one. How do we prevent the FBI from investigating people instead of crimes? I mean, yeah, it seems clear to me that if the president of the United States decided one day that he hates me, and I'm not important enough, I hope, for him to do this, but suppose he woke up one morning and said, that Charles Cook, he keeps hitting me on inflation, I'm so irritated, and sent FBI agents into my house on some frivolous pretext, I'm sure he'd find something. I mean, I don't have bomb-making equipment, but I'm sure I've committed some federal crime in the last 11 years, and if they spent enough time and money and looked through my record as a, an immigrant and then an American citizen, they'd find something. How do we stop that? Well, I, I think that if you had, you know, maybe as you've suggested, this should be done across the board, but, you know, particularly in different categories of cases like uh, political corruption cases where you have to worry really about the Bureau being used as a, as a partisan weapon, in those programmatic categories, you could require them to uh, to explain in a memorandum that would be discoverable by the Judiciary Committee what was their basis for opening an investigation and have those regularly reviewed by Congress. Not by you know what what goes on now, Charlie, is that Congress complains and occasionally they'll issue a subpoena, but the Bureau has largely stonewalled them and ignored them. And I think, you know, what you need to do is, number one, if they stonewall them, you have to cut their budget. Um, otherwise, they'll continue to do it. But don't make Congress issue a subpoena. 
you know, make it a regular thing that the FBI has to disclose in these categories of cases. Why did you open this case in the first place? And I think what you're what you're referring to is a particular abuse when you're talking about special counsel investigations, but it's also a big problem in civil rights cases, and it's a big problem in political corruption cases where they where they pick out a target rather than react to a crime. Yeah, and if you go back to the 70s, when Deputy Attorney General Lawrence Silberman looked through Hoover's papers, he wrote that the FBI had been, and I quote, used by presidents for nakedly political purposes, and that it had engaged in, again, quote, subtle blackmail to ensure his and the Bureau's power. And there are all sorts of examples of this, the, the campaign against Martin Luther King, the response to the murder by the KKK of Viola Liuzzo. You know, the agency had files on John Lennon, John Denver. Right. So how how, right. <laughs> how different is the FBI now than when Silberman wrote those words? I, I think they're worse than they were in the 90s, but in the 90s they were better than they were in the 60s. And I think that, you know, the downside in the last 30 years has been the uh, national security mission, which has made too much of the work uh, classified and undercover, and the problem up till then is the Hoover legacy. But I, you know, as you and I are both persnickety about separation of powers, and the police power, to the extent that the federal government has it, is is going to be an executive power. So no matter what we do, whether we got rid of the FBI or overhauled the existing one you would still have the problem of the potential that it could be used by the political arm of the executive branch as as a weapon. I always laugh when I hear uh, people like uh, my old friend Jim Comey say that the FBI director is given a 10-year term because the idea is the job is going to be apolitical and uh, the, the FBI director's term presumptively will stretch from you know, one presidency into another, often um, different parties. That's not why the the FBI the FBI director has a ten year term, which, by the way, is not really a ten year term because he can be fired like anyone else in the executive branch at will by the president. But the FBI director has a ten year term because they never wanted to have another Hoover again. Hoover was there for forty four years, and uh, that resulted in exactly the. The abuses and the legacy that, to his horror, Judge Silberman discovered. So the idea of cutting it down to 10 years was precisely because Congress understood the abuse uh, and the potential for abuse uh, and acted. But they obviously, they need to do a lot more than they've done. I think in a sense, it's even worse than you've just described in that the potential for abuse is obviously there because the executive branch runs the agency and should run the agency under our constitutional system. But the way in which the agency is described in our culture and also by the executive branch itself is as if it were a fourth branch of government. Right. There's a paradox here that you have the president who has all of this power and potential to abuse this entity will say, I'm Joe Biden, it's the most recent president to say this, will say it's independent. Well, <laughs> it can't be independent because if it is, then it's not accountable to anyone. But if that's how people see it, then it's going to be very hard to reform. That's how people see it. And that's how people, unfortunately, that's how people in the Justice Department and the agency see it. They, they think that any political control which is what you have in this system, is political interference in law enforcement. And they think that their law enforcement mission trumps all, that the, uh, you know, the enforcement of the law is the most important thing. Um, I got an early lesson in the 1990s that, that that's not the case when in my uh, blind shake case, when I was uh, thinking I was a you know, pretty hefty character running the biggest case in America, uh, I went to the CIA and told them they needed to give me a briefing on what happened, what the United States did in Afghanistan during the uh, anti-Soviet jihad, because I needed to be up to speed for purposes of the case. 
And CIA basically looked at me and said, boy, get the hell out of here. We ain't telling you nothing. They didn't care that I had, you know, that I was law enforcement, that I had the biggest case in America, that, uh, you know, they just didn't care. And they explained to me that, you know, our, our mission is protecting the United States. We don't care about your stupid case. And you're a federal, a federal prosecutor today, but you'll be a defense lawyer tomorrow, and then you'll be using everything we taught you to undermine the country. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, sensitive to the arrogance of the Justice Department and the law enforcement agencies on this sort of fourth branch of government thing where they simply think that their mission is more important than any other mission in the country and any interference in it uh, is, um, uh, you know, is grounds for, uh, every horrible thing that you can imagine should happen to, you know, whatever political official or any other government official that tries to interfere with them. But that is the way they think. All right. Final idea. Should we move it out of DC, put it in the middle of the country, make it less incestuous in its relationship with the, I don't want to say political branches having comp- Planned about the separation of powers issue, but the milieu in Washington, D.C., attract a different sort of person to join it, uh, force them to live in places that are more representative of the country. I'm not talking here about field offices. I'm talking here about the, the headquarters. Yeah, see, you know, I think with the FBI, that's less of a problem than it is with other federal agencies, because most of the FBI is actually outside of Washington. Headquarters obviously isn't. Uh, there's probably good reasons why headquarters has to have, it, it may not have to be as, as uh, structured as it is now, but it probably has to have a presence uh, in Washington. Um, and again, most of the FBI is in the 94 districts across the country. In fact, Charlie, what you're hitting on is actually, I think, what one of the big problems with the Russiagate investigation is, which is there's always been a presumption in the Justice Department that main justice in Washington and FBI headquarters were there to give guidance, but that the actual casework of investigations should be done in the field offices. And that was to protect the people who were doing the investigations from you know, the political pressures of Washington. What happened in Russiagate was that the justice the FBI's headquarters decided to take the investigation on and run it themselves and i think a a fallout of that was that there was no one left to play the role of headquarters in in telling people no when they wanted to do things all investigators want to push the envelope every investigator thinks his investigation is the most important investigation in the history of investigations and you always need some a cooler head and adult supervision to say, you know, no, we don't do that. We don't take uh, a screed of political opposition research that no one has verified and run into the FISA court and swear under oath that it's reliable. You know, we don't do that. But if headquarters takes over the investigation, there's no one there to tell them no. So I do think that investigative work should be moved out of Washington. Uh, But in terms of the proper role of headquarters, which is supervisory, not not uh, hands-on casework, uh, I don't see a big problem with that being in Washington because they would have to have some kind of presence in Washington. All right. Well, before we finish, I have a question that occurred to me when you were talking earlier, and that is, what did the federal government do before the FBI in that while it was, of course, much smaller within our constitution, lauded before the 1930s, the genuine interstate questions that you mentioned still presumably arose. And we've had a Department of Justice since just after the Civil War. So what happened without the FBI? If I abolished it tomorrow and didn't replace it, what, what, what would we look to as the model? Well, I think most of federal law enforcement is a function of the progressive era. I mean, there was only about, uh, I think Hoover, the, the the um the grain of what became the FBI started in around 1904-1905 so you know what are you talking maybe 30 years between the time the justice department stood up 
beginning as the Justice Department as we now know it, which we didn't have really for the first century of constitutional governance. Uh, it wasn't that long until you had this Bureau of Investigation within the Justice Department that ultimately under Hoover became the FBI. And most of the reason that we can't say, you know, what did the government do before there was an FBI is there really wasn't federal law enforcement as we know it much before the FBI. And most of what we now know as federal law enforcement really grew up beginning in the 1920s, 1930s with the explosion of the federal government which carried with it the explosion of federal law enforcement in a way that didn't exist prior to then. Yeah, I guess you'd have to go back to a really antiquated way of doing things, because if you look at, say, the Whiskey Rebellion, which involved the enforcement of a federal law, you had a combination of U.S. Marshals and Peace Commissioners and state-level militias, and then the army, (laughs) led by Washington on a horse. (laughs) Right, right. But, you know, it wasn't as easy... Uh, than as it is today to to commit you know big interstate crime right uh, and you know that's it's it's just it's just it's just a different time it is a different time all right Andy it is uh, a different time and we've run out of time unfortunately uh, I said uh, twenty minutes and we've done forty five which is terrific I could do uh, an hour and forty five on this topic but for now we will just have to uh, agree to disagree although I think you make uh, excellent points. And um, hope, I suppose, for reform, because I do agree with you on one thing. There is no way that Congress is going to abolish the FBI. (laughs) Hopefully, they'll make some changes to it. I do think there's a political will to make some changes to it, um, and probably most acutely within the Republican Party. So if we do get another Republican trifecta, I do wonder what we will see. Yeah, I, I really hope that there's reform, and I hope they do the reform the right way. I think, you know, the tendency, unfortunately is to reform, you know, the law enforcement processes instead of, you know, those processes exist because crime exists and we need to be able to combat it. The problem is the agency and that's what needs to be, you know, I would, I would not get rid of the government's powers because they're there because you need them, but you do have to deal with the people who wield them abusively. All right. I appreciate it. I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Charlie. And that is all we have time for this week. So thank you to everyone who sent me their bizarre sports superstitions. Thank you to Andy McCarthy for talking to me about the FBI. Thank you to you for listening. And I'll see you next week.